I'm Steve Fisher. Are you funny? Has someone told you you should be a comedian? It's not easy. The best comedians may make it look that way, but only after hours and hours of work. Bobby Logan is a funny man, and he's turned that ability into a long-standing career writing material for comedians, TV shows, and movies. Now he's passing on the knowledge of how to do it to others. I always tell him up front, I said, look, you have to be intrinsically funny. You have to have, think funny. You're not going to be a, a nuclear physicist who only thinks that kind of stuff and, and be a stand-up comic. He's my guest on Life Slices. Welcome to Life Slices podcast, Bobby Logan. I'm going to ask you a question that I always start all our guests out with, although with a little modification. Who is Bobby Logan? Bobby Logan is an alleged human being who career-wise took a mentally defective attitude and built a career around it. Basically, he's a, he's a, he's a young punk that, that grew up in East L.A. He was a, the only Irish kid in a, in a Mexican-American community and had a pretty tough childhood. Parents were divorced. The mother was quite ill. And, and because of that, dived into comedy, used the, that as a defense mechanism and, and eventually turned it into a career. I guess that's who I am. And how did you get started? In junior high, I would write the little comedy assemblies we would have. I don't know how I got I'm hired, you know, I didn't get paid, but I, mean, I don't know how I got chosen to do that, but I would write them and, and they would make kids laugh. I wasn't really the class clown or anything like that. Far from it. I was actually quite quiet in class, but Somehow I could uh, put it on paper and made them laugh. So in junior high school and then high school, wrote the senior show, that kind of stuff. After that, went to college for a little bit, cruised the country a little bit just to sort of find myself, not to wax poetic, but true. And then when I came back, I started seeing, I wanted to do more comedy. i not really performing it, but writing it. But I started an improv group, the Friday and Saturday nights in Westwood, when the big thing was to go to all the movie theaters there, we would perform. There were jugglers there that would come out and perform and get crowds. So we used to perform after them. So I named the group after the juggler. <laughs> and because uh, we were, and uh, we were after the juggler. So we, we, we started doing that and they started hanging around people that were funny and whatever. And then long story short, eventually got a job at the comedy store in Westwood and it became like the the manager kind of a thing. And while there, I would see young comics go. I actually was part of a comedy team called Bobby and Eddie with a friend of mine, Eddie Houck, who teaches in high school. I think he's recently retired, but in uh, high school in Long Beach now. But anyway, for six months, we were a part, part of the team, Bobby and Eddie. And so well-liked, I guess, the Mitzi Shore, the owner of the place, put our name on the west on the sunset wall outside. We had the comics' names, it's, they put our name. But after six months, I got tired of it. I didn't need the fix, if you will, of performing. Didn't like getting in front of a crowd anymore. So I rewrote the act for him, made it a single for him. And then I went off and started writing for some of the young comics I would see performing there, like Gary Shanling and you know just tons of comics. And then who started coming up and eventually the bigger name people heard about me and Joan Rivers and Roddy Dangerfield and people like that. And they would hire, they hired me and I started writing for them. Then I got an agent, started writing TV, then movies, and then started making my own movies and my own TV stuff. And that's basically it. 
Well, all right. Don't get it. Don't get ahead of the questions here. Of all the celebrities you've worked with, which one surprised you and in what ways? Joan Rivers surprised me in that she worked so hard to become a star and to be out there and to be known and everything. And but in her personal life, she retreated back into a house with an 11 foot wall all the way around her and Here's this person who wants to be known and, and loved and everything like that and just became more reclusive in her own personal life. So it didn't turn out wow. the way she wanted. Rodney, I, Rodney was the ultimate partier. Into his 80s, the man was still partying and still, with respect, still still using the drugs and stuff and whatever. So he was uh, he never grew up part of him. But I liked, I liked him quite a bit. Shanlin... I, I, I'll tell you something. I have actually a little negative of a story about Chandler. I, I was writing for him, some stuff for him, and he, without a doubt, I was, as a matter of fact, with him when he did his that historic Tonight Show spot that Carson used to replay every year and all like that. And I, hel- I helped him with that and wrote some stuff and then whatever. And I was there backstage with him, and and he became a big star. And when I one day about, I don't know, while I was still writing stuff for him, I, I read in the trades that he got a show on H on Showtime called It's Gary Shanling's Show. So I called him up and left a message saying congratulations. And basically, like, when do we start working? Because I thought I'd be on at a minimum as like a story editor or something like that, or at least a writer. Uh-huh. And ever since that time, he never returned my calls. That was kind of sad and shocking. And, and he's because he moved on to bigger writer, Alan Zweibel and people like that. And, and, and I wasn't on that level, but I was still writing for him and whatever. I never heard from Gary at that point ever. And then years later, I was doing a pilot for a, a, a Fox children's show called Count de Clue's Mystery Castle, which we shot at uh, the Magic Castle. And I'm in the editing room at Complete Post in Hollywood late one night. It's about midnight. And I was sitting in the hallway taking a break from editing. And who walks down the hallway but Shanling? And he sees me and he, he kind of smiles like he wants to say something, but I looked away. I wouldn't acknowledge him. Ooh. And uh, that was uh, kind of a sad ending to that. Oh, turnabout's fair play, though. I, uh, I, I guess there was no reason for it, but he, he let business get in the way of friendship. And that's a tough thing about Hollywood sometimes. Yeah. No, uh, I think we've all been there one way or the other. Now, you made the leap to film directing. How yeah. did that come about? I always wanted to direct. I mean, I I was one that whenever I would write something, if it was a cartoon or, a, you know, an animated show, or if it was even with stand-ups and all like that, I I didn't want to just give the material and say, good luck, do it your way. I, I had certain ways in which I wrote it that I wanted them to do it, or I thought it was the best way for them to do it. And then when it came to the directing, I had, it was been late, late 80s, I guess, no, around 87 or 88. I got the opportunity to, I came up with an idea. Tim Conway had done a series of videos called Dorf on Golf, with a little miniature character and whatever. Anyway, and it did quite well. Well, I had an idea, you know, there were like 45 million bowlers in the world. So I wanted to do a comedy on bowling. So I got together with Murray Langston, who's a dear friend of mine, the unknown comic. And I wrote a thing called uh, Life in the Bowling Line. And it would star him. And I thought, well, you know, we get it out there. We'll do, we can do well. So I wrote it and I was in the position to go to the people who were putting the money up and say, I want to direct it too. So I directed it and 
found I, I found I, it was one of those things where I knew I'm doing something I, I have done probably in the 20s or something. In other words, in a previous life, because it was so natural to me to work with the actors and the crew. And I, I, I surprised myself. I knew things that I didn't know I knew how to take breaks, how to set the camera, how to do that. I knew this stuff in, in, instinctually. So anyway. Uh, directed that and directed some other stuff with Linda Blair did a thing called How to Get Revenge and some other stuff. And then Murray and I got together one day and decided I had an idea about doing a comedy, a dramatic comedy movie called Up Your Alley that would be you know, about the homeless in L.A., a love story amongst the homeless. He knew Linda Blair and we, cont- we Murray and I wrote the script together. He got a hold of Linda. She loved it, wanted to be in it. So we got Linda Blair in it. We did this movie. I directed it. Murray uh, produced it and it did well. We made it for like $80,000 and it made a lot of money. It actually did quite well during the heyday of Vestron and home movies and VHS and all like that. And while making that movie is when I had the idea of doing another movie, which you're probably going to ask me about. So we'll get that. We're friends from way back. So, yep. so it's no surprise to people listening. You pulled me aside. What I don't remember how it came about, but years ago you said, stop trying to sell your, your, stuff just make your own movie yeah and you showed me up the alley up your alley and and you told me how you did all this stuff it looked like a very highly financed project and you, you, you did it by guerrilla filmmaking yeah oh yeah we shot it and we shot it in nine days we had a crew of about eight people and the interesting thing was back then nobody shot digital it was all film and you couldn't shoot it in 16 millimeter because first of all, it had a certain look like it was in really low budget student filmish. Uh, you had to shoot in 35 and it was expensive. So what I had to do that was really tough was I had to edit in the camera. What I mean by that is instead of like generally if you had a two minute scene in, a, in, a, in an alleyway and people are talking, you'd shoot it in a master shot real wide and then you get the close ups and you get the over the shoulders. And he would shoot the entire scene from the beginning to the end at each camera angle. This way, I, uh, with this little amount of money we had, I couldn't do that. So I would basically just say, I had the film edited in my head saying, okay, I'm going to start off with a wide shot, but I'm just going to have them open and say a line or two and then say cut and don't worry about the rest of it. I'm gonna, I know I'm going to go to the close up here and back and forth and I would only shoot what I needed line wise, not the entire scene. So I was kind of locked into my edit. So that was that was a tough thing. But, you know, I had a really good crew. Mark Melville was my DP. He was terrific. And when you have a small crew, it's amazing. People think you need a big crew to give it, get a great look. Really don't. Matter of fact, with a smaller crew, you're allowed to move quicker, much quicker. So therefore, you can get more camera angles or spend more time to get it right and so forth as opposed to a big crew, which is going to take you an hour to set up another shot and so forth. So uh, thank you for the compliment, but I, you know, they, I hand that to my crew for uh, doing a great job. I was thinking about this the other day because now it's so easy for people to make their own movies. Back yeah. then, it was a chore. I mean, I, I think I, I said to you, well, if I could make my own movie, I'd do it in a second. I just don't have the money and the resources and the mm-hmm. wherewithal. And, and that's when you showed me this stuff. But today, with all the digital equipment, anybody can go out and make a movie. Absolutely. I mean, you know, The only excuse you have nowadays is lack of talent. You do have to have the talent to, it shows. I mean, on YouTube, people make literally make m- 
independent films and put them on YouTube like every day and, and hundreds or thousands a day. So you've got to go up. You're against those people. But ultimately, to, to go to the next level, talent has to win out. You have to be a, a talented enough filmmaker and tell a story a good way and so forth. So ha- as a way of thinning people out. But yeah, no, you're absolutely right. On your phone, I, you know, my iPhone here, I've got my little iPhone here. My iPhone can actually shoot, like, like most people's, in 4K, 4K video, which is much more powerful than what George Lucas shot, one of the, one of the first Star Wars that he did digitally. He got it in, 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 I think, 1K or 2K, and that was it. So you can actually shoot something technical, technologically more advanced with your cell phone than George Lucas shot a Star Wars film in. And then you can get saw, you can edit on your, your, at your home computer and you buy a piece of, you get free software on the internet to edit and so forth. So yeah, you, they got studio in a box now. All, all of us do. It just, it just takes the, the time effort. And I guess ultimately the desire to, to go off and actually do it. Now you graduated fr- from the streets of LA with <laughs> up your alley to right. a, a little bit bigger time stuff. How did you get connected to Leslie Nielsen? A great story, actually. When I was doing the Up Your Alley movie with Linda, about a week into the shoot, I, I had an idea. And I said, you know, Linda, I got an idea for us to do another movie after this. She goes, what? I said, I'd do a spoof of The Exorcist. I got the whole, it'd be a comedy. And at the time, Naked Gun had just come out with Leslie and obviously years before that airplane. It was that style of humor because people loved it. And I love that style of humor, too. So I said, I, 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 the idea is real simple, Linda. It's years later. You're, the little girl has grown up, and she's had, got her own family, and the devil comes into her again, and we'd call it repossessed. Get it? <laughs> and she, she said to me, Bobby, she goes, I love you. We became very, she's a very dear friend to this day. She says, but, but I won't do it. And I said, why not? She goes, I'm tired of people making fun of me. I, people see me on the street, and they say, hey, turn your head around. for Hey, throw up for us, you know, whatever. And I won't do it. And I said, but I don't want them to laugh at you. I want them to laugh with you. That's the idea. She goes, still, Bobby, I, I appreciate it, but no. But something, Steve, that little t- thing that you, I'm sure, get to all the time, something in my brain said, do it anyway. So I went off and I took a month and I wrote the script. I wrote Repossessed, knowing that if I can't get her, I got no movie. So I went, I showed it to her. She read it and she still didn't get it because Linda didn't understand that style of humor at all. She just didn't get it. So I said, I want to show, I want to show you something. So Naked Gun had just come out and it was a huge hit. I took her up to the Universal Theaters, theaters at Universal Studios, and we went to a matinee, and there were only like 10 people in the audience, and I showed it to her and she laughed her ass off. Can I say ass here? I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, anyway. You can. There's there is no no limitations here whatsoever. Oh, fucking A. So anyway, <laughs> uh, so I took her to uh to see, see it, and she laughed her ass off. Like I said, she said to me, okay, Bobby, I get the humor now. I love it. She goes, okay, I just have one request. I'll commit to the project if you get Leslie Nielsen to play The Exorcist. And I went, okay. <laughs> so I went home. Now, Leslie was the biggest comedy star in the world at this point, as you remember. Uh, the top star by far. And it's like somebody saying, yeah, I'll be in your movie just to get Tom Cruise and uh, Tom Hanks to be in it. OK, uh, yeah, sure. But what happened was this. He, Leslie had been 
I, 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 Leslie had been in a show I had written years before. My very, my first show, I think it was called a show called Laugh Tracks. And he was a guest on it. And I wrote a sketch that he, he did. And he liked it so much that he asked to meet the writer. Because we were up at the office and they were shooting it wherever they were shooting. So he, they called me. And so I came to the set and I thought it was to rewrite something because it wasn't working. But it was because he wanted to meet me and say, I really like this sketch. And it's funny. I go, well, thank you. And he gave me a, a business card. Now, it's eight or nine years later, and now I bring you back up to Linda Blair's day. So I remembered I had the business card somewhere in one of my files. So went, got it. And I'm going to really try to synopsize this story because I can make this a mini series so easily. I, I, in about two hours of looking around, I found the card. I called the number up, hoping I'd get an answer machine. Luckily, I did. He goes, hello, this is Leslie. I'm not in, blah, 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 beep. And I stammer, whatever I say, Leslie, this is Bobby Logan. Do you remember me? I'm the guy you, I wrote this sketch and blah, blah, blah. And you gave me your card. It was eight years ago. Well, blah. well, the thing is, I just did my first movie. And now I got Linda Blair committed to my next one, which is a, a parody of The Exorcist called Repossessed. And I think you'd be the perfect uh, exorcist. And I know you're the biggest star in Hollywood, but if you'd please call me, blah, 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 blah. Beep. So I hang up. Next morning, about six in the morning, I'm asleep. My then wife, my test wife, uh, <laughs> and we're lying asleep and the phone rings. She picks up the phone and she rubs me and she goes, Bobby. I go, Bobby, what? It's Leslie Nielsen on the phone. I go, huh? <laughs> so I grab the phone and I say, hello, hello. She goes, he goes, Roberto. I'll never forget it. Roberto. I go, hi. He goes, this is Leslie Nielsen. How are you doing? And I said, great. And then all of a sudden he goes, and thank God you told me, Steve, I can use a bad word. I'm just going to be honest. <laughs> so he goes, oh, fuck. He goes, I'm sorry. What's it, 6 a.m.? I'm in New York. It's 9 here. I'm sorry. Did I wake you up? And I said, of course, I said, no, no. I always get up at this. Time. No, no, no. I'm fine. I'm wide awake. And I'm, yeah, baloney. But he said, what's this about? He goes, and I said, do you remember me? He goes, I remember you wrote the sketch about blah, blah, blah. And then in detail, he reminds me of what the sketch was. He still remembered it. So he said, look at, what's the thing? I told him the whole thing. Boom, boom, script. Blah. He goes, tell you what, I love this idea. He goes, look at, I'm in New York. I'm hosting Saturday Night Live this weekend. He goes, do me a favor, send me the script. It was like a Tuesday. FedEx me the script. I'll read it on Thursday because I have the day off basically on Thursday. And watch the show, and there's a certain sketch I do. And if if I like your script, I'll wink at the camera. I went, okay. So sent the script off. Long, Steve, the longest three days of my life to get to that Saturday <laughs> night, right? I'm sure. Sure. So it's 11.30 now at night. The show starts. Here, I'm Leslie Nils. Hello, blah, blah, blah. Doing, he does sketches. It goes to 12 o'clock. Still haven't done that certain sketch he's saying. Then it goes to 12.30. They haven't done it. Then it goes to quarter to one. They still haven't done it. Now I'm going... As you know, they write extra long, extra sketches in case they run short and, you know, yeah, always have more material. I'm going, they cut the sketch. They cut the sketch. What am I going to do now? Do I call them afterward? Anyway, it gets to about five minutes to one. The show's closely over. And all of a sudden that sketch that he said he's going to be in starts. And blah, 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 blah. And he says, hello, blah, 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 blah. And he does his funny things and this and that. And at one point, the camera dollies real close to into his face, which he said it would do. And he says, that's why blah, blah, blah. And he winks. Ooh. big wing. And Steve, you had to scrape me off the ceiling. <laughs> and the next morning he calls me up. I didn't sleep all night. Next morning he calls me up, says, I just love this script. Let's do it. I'm going to have uh, Sandy Bressler's people call you. Sandy Bressler was his agent. Sandy's big time, as you know, handles Nicholson and everybody. And he said, let's do this thing. 
I called Steve Wazan, who's the son of Joe Wazan, who used to run Fox. He was on my softball team. He was looking for a movie, his first movie to produce. And I called him up and I said, hey, I got Leslie Nielsen and Linda Blair to do. What? <laughs> so anyway, we had his father got it, called me about an hour later, Joe, and he set up a meeting at Carol Co. the next more, next day, Monday, I believe it was. Yeah, Monday. And we had the deal at the end of the day. And suddenly I went from making an $80,000 movie to a multi, multi, multi-million dollar comedy. How did Repossess do? You know what? That's another story. It's going to be a company just in Germany is making the Blu-ray of it now. They recently had me do a commentary on it and interviewed me. And I was very blatantly honest about what happened. I made the film. And when it came out in 1990, it was the only Leslie Nielsen comedy for the summer of 1990, the year after Naked Gun. And it was on the spoof of the greatest horror movie of all time, arguably. So how do you miss? Well, they had switched ownership at the company at Caroco. And long story short, it's like uh, when a lion has cubs with another lion and a bigger lion comes in. The first thing he does is he chases off that one lion and he kills the cubs because it ain't hit. Well, that's what they do with movies. Yeah. This wasn't their movie. And they just put it out on a little... 50 screen national release and it didn't do anything on and when it started getting a following was when it came out on vhs and ultimately dvd then it started getting following all around the world uh, to this day in italy and france germany it's uh like germany's making a uh, blu-ray of it today so it's got a huge following and he out here too but that's uh that's what happened although it just if i may real quick it just Tarantino, Quentin Tarantino at his theater, the New Beverly, I just ran repossessed and they had me come and speak there to introduce the film at the beginning, had a packed house. It was amazing. And they loved the film. And it was, it was a kick. They had Tarantino chose it to be one of the films just before Halloween. And it was, that was a blast. Not bad. Not bad. I mean, Tarantino on your side. Hey, why not? not? (laughs) I'll take him. You did another film with Leslie, didn't you? No, I didn't. He was going to be in for the partner. I own the rights to F Troop to make it a movie. And he, there was at one point I had the project set up at Disney and it was going to be Jim Carrey, Leslie Nielsen. And uh, I can't think of the other actors right at this point, but anyway, and it was all set to go. And then it got pulled at the last minute because uh, a bigger, a bigger, a much bigger producer is named to be kept in a box right now, argued with Disney because they gave me the last slot, film slot uh, for F Troop. And this one, he was a much, much more powerful person. So he got it and they put me on the back burner and subsequently never could get F Troop made and can't do it today because uh, of the Native American problems with, with they wouldn't, the, the Hakawi Indians would be looked at as uh, not favorably. Huh. So. Yeah. Well, it, it, it seems like you could do that. You could do the Hakawis in a way that would make them look that much better. I, I totally agree. I, I would tell people, look at, and as a matter of fact, I, they were saying things about the way they talk, you know, Indian, no talk like this, that kind of thing. I said, I agree. So I wrote a, a thing that wasn't in the TV series, but I wrote it that they talk like that in front of all the other troopers and all the other white men and so forth. But when we're away from them, when they're alone, they talk in perfect English. <laughs> And the reason they talk like that is to make it look like they're savages, to use that in, as business, a business point, you know? It would have been fun and cute and whatever. 
Mel Brooks has said he he couldn't make Blazing Saddles today. No way. It, it, no and way. it's a brilliant film. I mean, I just watched it recently. Again, it holds up, and yeah. it's uh, it's hilarious, and it makes fun of stereotypes. It doesn't it, it, embrace you know, them. You know why, Steve? In my opinion, this is why comedy. I'd hate to be getting into the comedy business nowadays. Although I'll tell you something in a minute, but I hate to get in this way because. People now are so separated. It used to be this country and the comedy world was a melting pot. But somehow or another, along the line, the flame disappeared and all the elements in the pot have separated into their own little, the oil's gone here, the water's gone here, into their own little groups. And I liked it when it was, we were all together and mixed together and made fun of each other equally, which, you know, Mel Brooks did. But you you know how many times they used the N word in, in Blazing Saddles? Well, people didn't care because they knew it was it was it was a goof, and they were just having fun with everybody. Right, you can't do that nowadays. And and it was co-written by an African American man named Richard Pryor. Absolutely. So it's like absolutely. Yeah, you know, if he can do it, anybody can. You would think. Uh, we're going to fast forward to today because we're running out of time, okay. and you're now doing a comedy school. Yeah, I, I just started it. As a matter of fact, last night was our second class. Um, and my humor's always been second class. But you know, ladies and <laughs> gentlemen, no, I started, I moved out to LA. My wife and I, my wife Lori and I moved about 90 miles south of LA just to get away from the rat race. Been there my whole life to a town called Winchester, which is two miles from uh, Temecula. So it's beautiful out here. It's like, it's like Simi Valley in the Los Angeles area it used to be in the 70s and 80s, like a bedroom yeah. community. It's beautiful. You got some land. I can do some things and blah. Beautiful home and everything. it's nice and it's and everything runs at three quarter speed here. The people, everything. So I love it out here. Anyway, but I got a little kind of bored. I'm semi retired. I got one project I want to make. I own the rights to Rainbow Man, the guy who started the whole John three sixteen thing at sporting events on TV. Do you remember that? Yeah, he used to sneak on TV with a rainbow wig and. I own his life rights. It's an amazing life. He's in prison for the rest of his life with three life terms now, but that's another story. So I just got a little bored. And my wife said, why don't you do something? You, you used to teach. You used, I used to do a thing called the, the one day $99 film school to teach people how to make films for like 99 bucks, not to make a film, but yeah, that's how much I charge them to teach them everything. But so I thought the same thing here. So I started a thing called the four-week stand-up comedy school and if i can plug the website i'd appreciate it please do it's called it's the website is fourweekcomic.com and it's the number four not the word but four week comic for four weeks because ideas in four weeks i teach you everything you need to be a stand-up comedian how to do with the business character development writing material so forth and it's just uh, every wednesday night Every month for, you know, four, four Wednesday nights and another month, I have people come. And in the first class, they come to my home. You've got a fairly spacious home here and nice living room, big ceilings and a widescreen. And I show them the clips and I talk to them and this and that. And I have like eight to 10 people come each month. And uh, last night was our second night and we're having a blast doing it and they're learning stuff. So that's out here. If I did this in LA, there are a whole bunch of comedy schools that uh, stand up comedy schools but I'm the king of it out here now. So. <laughs> and did you pick Wednesday night because there's nothing on TV on Wednesday nights? Absolutely. And when has there been anything on Wednesday nights? So, 
Except in the eighties. In the eighties, ah, those are the those are the good times. Wednesday night, Wednesday and Thursday nights. That's right. So now yeah. here here's the question: Can you <laughs> actually teach somebody to be funny? And the answer is, you can teach them to be as funny as their talent will take them. I guess is the best answer. I always tell them up front. I said, look, you have to be intrinsically funny. You have to have, think funny. You're not going to be a a nuclear physicist who only thinks that kind of stuff and and be a stand-up comic. I, what I can teach is building a character based on the strengths of what you, how you see the world, how to build a character on that to perform it, and then little tricks of the trade that I have in, in writing material, playing with words, juxtaposition of situations, and you know, good versus evil, that kind of stuff. And I can show them the tools that they can put in their little toolkit, mental toolkit, but I couldn't uh, really teach them talent. And that's the first thing I show them on a slide that I have in this little PowerPoint that I do. I say, there's one thing I cannot teach you is talent. They have to know if they are funny enough inside to do it. And then I'll give them the tools to take it out and try it. That's basically it. Is there anything where we're unfortunately out of time uh, for now, but but when your students start becoming popular standups, we'll get back together and talk about how, how you did it. But sure. for now, is there any question that you would like to answer that I haven't asked? I'd like to know, actually, and this is probably not the venue for it, but in privately, but I'd like to know what you've been doing, my friend. It's been a long time since it's been a long time since I've seen you in person. A long time. Too long. Yes. And uh and I and I've always been a big stan, uh, fan of yours, Stephen. Thank you. For the people who are, for the people who are listening, this is one mightily talented man. And that's Thank why you. when he called and asked if I would do this, I jumped at the opportunity. It just just first off, to see him and talk to him again. But secondly, you know, to talk to a guy who's a, a really very mad, madly, madly talented guy. So there you go. Wow. I'm taking that to the bank. Uh, <laughs> for now, uh, we're going we're gonna to have to stop it here. And Bobby, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. It's been a kick. Thank you. My thanks to Bobby Logan for being on Life Slices. There's a quote often attributed to actor Edmund Gwen, who famously played Kris Kringle in the original Miracle on 34th Street. Lying on his deathbed, a friend asked if dying was hard. Gwen supposedly said, dying is easy, comedy is hard. And so it is. If you really feel you must do it, go ahead and give it a try. As Bobby said, you can't be taught to be talented but you can back it up with skills and knowledge to sharpen that ability. If you like this program, please subscribe and like Life Slices wherever you find fine podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Use it courtesy of Fesley Studios.